Hi, this is David Leach of the UVix Department of Writing. The following interview took place as part of a series of conversations I had with authors and other guest experts on the topic of memory and the creative process in my Writing 501 graduate MFA seminar. We hope you enjoy. All right, well, welcome back. I was absolutely thrilled to discover the audio production of uh, Javesh Parasnam's Take the Milk Now, as it's both a brilliant uh, one-man show and a perfect match for this course with its complex and compelling explorations of memory and identity. Uh, Javesh is an award-winning multidisciplinary artist and facilitator of Indo-Caribbean descent. He's a founding artistic producer of <clears throat> Pandemic Theatre, and the artistic director of Rumble Theatre. Uh, after three years as the associate artistic producer at Theatre Pass Marai, he's collaborated with Canadian Commission for UNESCO, and he's been an advisor to the National Arts Centre. And his current cultural practice really centers decolonization through aesthetics. Welcome, Jiv. Hello. Right. Well, so we, we've been beginning this series on memory with uh, this question. What's your first memory of wanting to be a writer or a performer? Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I think for me, it's um, there's I, I kind of like I'd written the David a couple of thoughts before. So I might be referring back because my memory these days, fittingly, is like a whole thing onto itself. Um, but okay, so I think there's a couple of them. Um, so the big one, I like, I don't know if it's performance, I guess is why I, I, I did a couple. Uh, but like, when I was about four, or turning four, uh, we were doing this yagna, which is like a multi day prayers slash party, <laughs> I guess you could say. Um, and so just watching my, um, my grandfather and my uncles kind of like, uh, uh, do that. I suppose, like big audience, like singing songs, doing uh, doing rituals. Uh, that was kind of like a, my first kind of exposure to like, oh, crowds. Because growing up, I, I grew up in Halifax. Otherwise, I'm like, we just didn't socialize with other people because <laughs> that's just how my family is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's that. And then I think otherwise, like um, when I was thinking about it uh, uh, the other day, it was like, oh, I think it might be like performance itself, maybe when I was... 12 or something i went to edge fest uh back when edge fest was still around and uh mighty body boss tones like they weren't the best band playing by any stretch like a perfect circle was playing and all like it was there's some excellent music there uh mighty body boss tones good too but i think just like seeing them like in like that kind of um american white guy ska uh style like that kind of new ska so like there's costume elements, there's performance element. Like, it's really like, oh, this is a show. Like, while everybody else is doing, like, uh, music, which is still a show, but, like, they're, like, character personas kind of performing. And uh, and they were pretty funny, like, very clownish. So I think that was, like, probably the first time I was like, I could do that or I would want to do that. Or it's just fun. Like, that that interplay with the audience thing is kind of cool. more what I've driven to, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, what role does memory play in your own creative process in, in general? How do you explore memory? Yeah. I mean, like, I think it depends on, like, and I'm curious, like, what everyone's, how you've been talking about, like, memory in terms of temporality. Like, memory versus imagination, I guess, is the thing I kind of come back to. Like, memory theoretically 
is something that's happened in the past, but like it's an imagining of what happened in the past anyway. So what's the so the vision there? So then and so like I guess like in the sense of I'm trying to tap into like creativity, generically creativity, like um, I'm only drawing on memory. Like I'm even stuff if it's trying to be more futuristic, futurism thinking, you know, is is rooted in memory. So I guess it's like it is kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. And then there's I, I would say I use con I consciously try to use like historical stuff and alienate historical stuff. I think that's a big thing for me. Okay, great. Yeah, and this is like a, a multi-genre course. So we've been looking at uh, both how we represent memory in a, in a wide variety of, of uh, genres, but this is the first week we've, we've kind of tackled theater and live theater. What are some of the tools or techniques or even advantages that, that live theater has to represent and really kind of get into the, the subject of memory, the experience of memory, and especially how memory intersects with identity? Yeah, it's like the intersection of identity in theater, I think, is really key with this part, like because it's, you know, up till recently, a live medium. Um, and it has to do like it's and it's sensorially like it's it's got all the senses there. So visual audio, um, um, like, I guess not really feeling, but smells are part of it, too. Right. Like when you go to a theater, like there is a smell, there is a thing happening. Um, so it's all these signifiers and like i guess like when the second that person steps on stage or the first stage picture is given to an audience um even from the introduction entering the theater to a certain degree but like you know let's keep it a bit to performance i suppose um they're you're coded like that person's coded um completely and the audience is coding that person and then like I think because theater is so much about duration, or these days I'm thinking about it as duration, like the duration we're spending with each other, the duration of moments, the duration of what we would call beats, like kind of like that kind of division. Um, I, yeah, I think it's about like playing with duration, like the intersection of identity is about playing with duration uh, and whether it's challenging or affirming, but troubling the, um, the assumed code that someone carries with them. Um, and that can be like, you know, on a, on a, it just in the performance itself, we're kind of like in this larger picture of like, what's it doing in the, the sector and the tradition and, and all those things. But from the, you know, I think from, from the gist of it and from what everybody, you know, non-theater artists who don't spend all of their time reviewing the theater canon and all that shit. <laughs> like, I think that, um, it's really about like identifying codes and then having the option to break or change or challenge those codes. Okay, great. And that leads nicely into the next question. Just tell us a little bit about the evolution of, of Take to Milk now, because I understand it began as a much shorter project, but you've added all of these different layers and different ways of kind of coming at, at, at the themes and it's kind of expanded. I'm kind of curious about its, its kind of journey as a, as a piece. Yeah. Um, so like my kind of tradition like okay so at its core it's basically just two stories so my buddies who run uh, it's in the show we talk about it but like my buddy ran these storytelling nights and so i had two stories one of them uh well I've i did a few there but like the, the ones that are in that show are this this birthing the cow story which is around the theme of milestones um which was generally what the show was like for the most part like it was that the first versions were just that story um and then I think like when I got a little bit of a, a bigger platform, like when I was at a, 
uh, I got into uh, this festival called Rock Paper Sisters, which is a development festival that Be Current does um, up in Toronto, Witchwood Barnes area at the time. And so it was like, oh, this is like a, a Caribbean audience. I'm like, I'm actually going to get to talk to Caribbean people because I don't usually get to talk <laughs> up to that point. I didn't really get to, it's not, we're pretty spread out. Toronto's a little bit better for critical mass, but I was like, oh, cool. So I kind of put that angle a bit more on this story about just um, the cow birth thing. Um, and that meant telling a bit more like in that context, minority um, history of, of the Caribbean, which would be like the Indian indentureship. So that's where that stuff kind of came up. Um, after that, I got it programmed for like a short showing at um, the Monsoon Festival, first Monsoon Festival doing up in Surrey. Uh, which was like super intimidating because there's like real brown people there, not just Caribbean brown people, but like brown people, brown people from India. <laughs> so um, so that was like super. So I really kind of like, you know, I was already doing some Hindu storytelling as part of it, but I was like, oh, how am I going to frame this? What's the context? How am I going to test this with all these uncles and aunties? Like the front, like I walked out and the front row was like all like uncles and aunties. And like the, the younger folks were like somewhere hidden in the back. All right. <laughs> so... You know, I had to do all that stuff, uh, but that was good because I got a chance to develop some more stuff with them. And then the second story that I kind of resisted putting in it, but it does make sense, was this 9-11 story. Hmm. And um, and so when really like we couldn't get to the 9-11 story, like from the cow story. And then it was like, how could we get there? And then it's really just the mashing of those two stories together where it's like, oh, basically we need like um, and. I don't want to call it filler because it's not filler, but we just, we need a connecting thought, which is in this case, kind of like a chaotic cyclical thought um, to talk about identity and the limitations of it. Because if anything, like, I guess that first part is like, oh, we're all great. We're all, you feel good. It's typical identity play shit. Um, and then uh, your second part is like, also typical identity play shit in a lot of ways. Um, but it's just like, if you feel good about all being together, it's just not the way it works, like in real life. So I guess that's what part two is, so to speak. So it, it and that's kind of um, what those two stories were anyway. Like story number one was really about like this cow and my connection to Trinidad. Story number two is more about Nova Scotia. Um, and it's from a story called Farewell to Nova Scotia, which is actually usually framed by using Farewell to Nova Scotia to kind of, um, which is a, a common folk song, uh, if folks know it. Uh, Stan Rogers also did a really good version. Uh, there you go. Yeah, Sasha singing along. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that as kind of like a rejection of um, of Nova Scotia in a way, or being rejected by. So yeah, just mashing it together and then trying to bring as many signifiers throughout and kind of get chaotic. Okay, great. I mean, your play looks at, you've got obviously that personal memory, family memory, but also historical memory or, or maybe kind of historical forgetting that the legacies of colonialism and imperialism and the, the history of indentured servitude or the history of, of Africville that uh, I guess mainstream Canada either chooses to forget or chooses to dismiss as, well, that's just the past. Why was it kind of important to add a, a, this kind of deeper layer of historical awareness, even kind of pause and teach the audiences some history as a, as a kind of connection to the personal stories that began. Yeah. I mean, I think that's ultimately the stuff that I'm more interested in to be, <laughs> to be honest, like the, the stories and stuff, like 
and we would fight a lot of, a lot of, about this in the process of developing it because it's like my buds who I was making it with they're like yeah it's great that you want to talk about this historical record it's not super interesting uh, I mean it's interesting but like we really need some human connection in it right so that's for me that's where like the story is like fine I'll tell a story about this now and I'll tell a story about this now okay uh, we'll just make it that way um, but it's important to include it because like I do think it's not like those those the marginal history parts I suppose like they're just not really taught much like and even to us when I say us like I mean, like people in the diaspora, like I know as much about the Indian indentorship only because I am of it. And I and I took the time to research it. Like we, my brother and I spent a lot of time in the archives and sort of that just trying to track shit down. Um, and it's a thing that would constantly like people, uh, at least I used to feel like, and I still kind of feel like people have no idea that this existed uh, whatsoever, which is, you know, understandable. Um, so there's this part about like, translating for an audience um who may not know it but that audience is not just like um, a mainstream audience who doesn't know it because there's actually a lot of us who are displaced and actually don't really know it that well and we haven't it, uh, culturally it's not really a thing that's talked about that much not because there's shame it's just like we just don't think to talk about it um it's just and we talk about lots of other things we're very talk talk heavy people <laughs> um for like bullshit, uh, but <laughs> like this stuff, yeah, not so much. Um, and so like, yeah, the using the the historical record, like that's I think important to contextualize and kind of place things in time. Like, oh, I'm displaced, why? Well, because of the British doing this thing. Okay, why? Well, because of this, because of the, like, this is, this is why it got to where it is right now. That's my attempt to kind of put that in. But also, you know, practically as a chance to I, I guess like add some humor to it and add some levity because um, like it might sound really awful this is a weird thing to say but like the Indian indentureship sucked for sure um, but it's not surprising that it sucked you know to uh, somebody whose family went through it it's like yeah I gotcha so we can make a joke about it because like we we know <laughs> that it's like fucked um so we can like at least feel acknowledged and we can we can get that shout out, but then also laugh about it because like world's fucked up. Um, sorry, I'm swearing so much. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> ah, fucking A, man. <laughs> we'll just add a content warning on the yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> Great. What is that? You talk about identity from a Hindu perspective as a field, a really interesting mm -hmm. metaphor, and that to divide ourselves into discrete identities is what you describe as a Hindu, because it's like dividing a field into property, and to do so is this kind of colonial idea. So an identity play recolonizes experience. Can you talk a little bit more about that? this kind of seeming paradox that you really wrestle with in an interesting way, how identity is important and identity plays can be valuable, but at the same time, identity in this very fixed state can divide us and identity plays can kind of commodify and sort mm -hmm. of serve up identity to an audience almost on this safe, easy to digest platter that we can kind of consume and then just leave again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the the kind of more like the Hindu philosophy thing, it, that section is kind of derived, and a lot of actually actually from a thing called the Pushpum, Pushpum, Pushkum, I don't actually speak Sanskrit, but uh, a specific mantra, um, which is this thing about like, 
uh, raft and water and anyway, basically it says like, if the only thing like in this, a flood or whatever, if the only thing you see is the raft, then you'll never actually see anything beyond the raft. It's kind of like the cave principle in some way, um, like Plato stuff. Um, but generally like we, uh, at least like in the books, like the, in the poems, like that's what they are, like our kind of records are poems. Um, like they, the self uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, like I, I had a chat with some Unitarian kids the other day because they wanted to know about Hinduism. And I was like, oh yeah, basically it's the God doesn't give a damn about you. God doesn't care. <laughs> like if there's a God, you don't matter because <laughs> you're so tiny a piece of existence. Um, so that Hindu thing is like, we're all basically part of the Atman. Atman being this giant cosmic energy that is everything. So on some level, like it doesn't matter. Like anything doesn't matter. I'm not different than the planet. I'm not different than Mars. I'm like, we're all the same thing. Not just like material, but like spiritually. Um, so identity to divide it in any way is like, well, that's kind of getting across, getting away from the point. But the, the reality of that Hinduism at least acknowledges, I think, is that we do engage with certain levels of Maya, uh, which are um, the illusion. So like the physical dimension, whatever it is. Um, so it's like, you need to, to engage in society. Like you need to have some Maya to engage in society. Otherwise you would just be like a yogi up in the mountains, like, you know, astral projecting all the time. That's great. That's cool. If you can do that. I don't have the resources to do that right now um, in the level of comfort that I would like. I actually do. Yeah, I do have the resources to just go into a mountain and just chill there. That's requires nothing else, actually. But um, yeah, so that's the Hindu part. And then like, uh, sorry, I think I just went. Oh, right. Recolonizing experience. Yeah. Colonial or not colonial. Like, I don't know, like in the context of this play, I'm certainly like using it as colonial. And I think that the origins of like that kind of quantification and division are a pretty colonial thing, like in my context, because like we didn't really have the same idea of property in India pre uh, like European colonial uh, contact. Like even Mughal stuff was very different. It's not really colonialism in the same way. Um, so that kind of like Western European colonial contact, I think um, enforced that idea of property. So if it is a field, then um, it's a sectioned off field where there is certain property and borders. Um, yeah, so to me, it's, uh, yeah, the paradox is, yeah, it's great to accept that we're all great, that we're all the same and all that stuff, but it's not the reality. And because we, we still live in a, a world like the, there is a Maya ridden world, which is the world we live in that we engage in. And if I want to engage with anyone on some level, then I got to accept that that's just what it is, which means going like, okay, I'm a, I am a human being. I'm this kind of human being. I'm uh, these, these are now the code. So then I start to code myself. Um, and again, coding back and forth, I think. No, no that makes sense. Well, it's, it's um, long been common, uh, decades common for right-wing pundits to dismiss any critique of power, often their power is identity politics. But now, I mean, you increasingly see those on the left, the center, uh, do it too, as though all politics weren't a form of identity politics. So you, you usually blame it coming from campuses as well. Um, even though that should seem obvious that it is after the Trump presidency, why do people seem so resistant to the idea that politics 
uh, intersects with identity and that we should kind of pay attention to how and create art and have discussions about that. Yeah, I think it's because if there's enough there's one specific reason, but like, I think it's because like when we talk about identity politics, um, oh, I, I wrote something about this down that I thought I was like, oh, actually, this kind of makes sense. Uh, so I thought, thought through it today. <laughs> right. Um, individuality is different than identity. Um, I think that's a key factor. Uh, they're both like ETs, realities in some sort. Um, but like the idea of the individual, I think is, I mean, it's a relatively new concept, 1950s kind of onward. Um, and I think that we see heightened individualism um, right now, like down to like, you know, now social media, like, you know, Facebook's getting making a Supreme Court. So clearly it has impact. Facebook has more citizens or whatever they are than there are like, than most of the, like bigger than any country. So that has to do with like, uh, not identity so much. Maybe it does. I don't know. But like, it does have to do with um, the the other one, the um, the individual. So I think like when you're resisting an an when you call something identity politics, it's being conflated sometimes with individual response um, to something. Whereas identity politics it's just political movement based on identity. So it might be like an affinity group. So like me and all the other brown guys, like now we're going to do an identity based, like that's identity, maybe. Um, but it's not individuality. Like identity still has to be bigger than you. Um, it's still some form of nationalizing, national like nationalism thought, um, tribal thought, something, you know? Um, and I get why politically people resist that. Um, but on the other hand, I think when the left uh, is criticizing it, it is more about the individualism than it is about the, the identity itself. And I and I I've, and I'm one of those those like leftists who 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 feels like it's gone too far into individualism, like and that we put too much weight on individualism. But I also see that that's that's great because like again, like a, a Hindu dude, like it's it's intuitive spirituality is kind of what we do so it's it's like they can both exist yeah oh yeah that makes sense all right i mean i laughed many times while listening uh to your play uh, but it was just one of many reactions i had what's what's your secret from bringing moments of humor uh to a, mo a monologue that tackles thorny subjects and isn't afraid to highlight violence or force its audiences to confront their own biases at the same time. How do you kind of bring humor to that world? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it's a secret. It's just like, I like stupid shit. Um, <laughs> kind of. Like, um, I'm, I'm really into like getting into like, like my, my idea of a fun time is like reading some critical like race theory and some, some affect theory, you know, and uh, having myself a nice glass of like, we you know that's what I do for fun. That and like, I'll read like these old Hindu like texts. Um, cause they're fucking crazy. Like they're just, it's from, they're fucking crazy cause it's from a completely different worldview than what we live in here. Um, and sometimes I don't know whether it was intended to be funny or not. Um, and I like to, I like to work with the idea that maybe it was, 
like the people I'm derived from specifically. So I'm Brahmin Hindu from probably mostly the North. We don't know um, because of how stuff shifts around. But, um, you know, like my ancestors, their job would basically be if they had a job, go into the forest, come up with stories uh, or remember stories like to keep the oral tradition, come back from the forest or the mountain or whatever tell that story to people and if they like it they feed you and stuff and if they don't you go back to the forest so it's like <laughs> it's already it's about humor entertainment like engaging with people in some ways like lately i'm thinking a lot more about loops and stuff and duration how that works but like at its core like the source material is fucking funny i think like the source like i think like getting called the the wrong racial slur and then getting like race attacked is actually kind of funny <laughs> like in terms of like duration wise that was like within an hour that's kind of funny in retrospect to me that's funny at the same time like if you go to like some of our our story like the one okay so here's one that didn't make it in this is like from the shiv purana um so ancient ancient texts one of the first ones that we have on record thousands of years old it's a bunch of uh, like people doing a big yagna, big sacrifice in the forest um, to Shiva, who's the god of destruction, um, who's kind of both in this world and the next whole other thing. Anyway, so they're doing this big thing. Uh, and then they go off. They're all, all the dudes go off for whatever reason. And all the women stay and they're having a good time and they're dancing. Um, they dance often with Shiva. Uh, and then out of the forest, um, this like covered in ash, creepy looking dreadlock dude, um with a bunch of ghosts show up naked and uh they're like oh creepy what's up and they're like oh wait that's shiva and then shiva uh is like yeah that's me i'm happy and he starts dancing and then um he gets an uh an erection um from joy it's not a sexual thing it's a joy boner uh so then uh the 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 uh, the dudes come back and they see this dude with a boner uh, dancing around uh, and is like, I curse you, may your dick fall off. And then his dick falls off. But because he's Rudra, who is like the god of destruction, chaos, all that, like not really chaos, but god of destruction, his dick then falls through time and space, destroying the fabric of reality. And then until they have to, and then there's a whole thing about how they fix it and then how it gets together. But like, this is the logic of... <laughs> of like ancient text so it's not hard for it to be funny um because it's it's just like I, it's so weird <laughs> maybe there's a marvel movie in there somewhere at the end. Hey, yeah i'd be into that i would be super i don't <laughs> Great. well we're, we're we've been talking about um uh kind of the experience of live theater at a time where we can't actually experience live theater except maybe if we're in australia how was it a, a different experience for you to re record um this this performance um in audio i think from your own home for the the cbc yeah. version versus uh performing it live for an audience in like an embodied space where you're kind of watching the reactions in real time mm. well like it's very different um it feels like i mean I, i've never really worked in film or tv or any like i've never worked in anything really besides theater versus like a couple of little things here and there so i it might be more familiar to like that just doing takes and just kind of sending it in um it's it's a show that really 
it really helped. Like it, it relies on that kind of back and forth with the audience in a lot of ways. So I think that we were able to, to pull it off. Um, from my end of doing it, it wasn't that much different, but what they did with it. So Greg Sinclair, who did the sound on it, I thought was really interesting. So I re-listened to it uh, on the weekend because I knew I was going to chat with you all. And there was something he was doing, like, and it might just be my limited understanding of radio and sound dramaturgy, but like, so what I noticed were the parts that would sometimes want more liveness, intimacy uh, in the room through the jokes, kind of, um, that kind of back and forth. He was able to do actually by doing the opposite, by like heightening it into a further alienated, a further distanced thing. Um, so in a way, like while in performance, I would want to bring people close. What Greg did was he kind of pushed people further away, which works, I think, great because in this medium, I'm like in your head the whole time. I'm in your ears. So you've had enough of me. So I, I think it's great to have those breaks. So I think it still serves a lot of the same function um, in terms of how it got put together. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly like the show is based on a ritual and an action, more an action than a ritual. It's based around a ritual, but it's to get to an action, which you, you can't, I mean, maybe you can, I don't know. It's just, it's about, I think so much about what theater is about and theater and performance, not just theater, but like any live performance about is relationality um, with the people around you. So like in this kind of Bergson way of thinking about, I think it's Bergson uh, way of thinking about uh, like comedy or, or any kind of affect really, like the reaction of the person sitting next to you is actually more important than the thing. Uh, and that's where you're actually getting a lot. Now a podcast, you don't actually have anyone else unless you listen to it with somebody else. But like generally speaking, like it's for a single person. So that's different. That's completely different. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, that, and that kind of ties into like in, in the, I guess, sort of the penultimate part of the play, you ask your audiences and then also do it in the podcast of so the listener, uh, listeners to self-identify whether they've experienced those forms of marginalization that you, you dramatize and, then, and and ask us to do some memory work uh, of our own and then step away or stop listening if we haven't had that same experience to give over that space. What were back when we could go uh, uh, physically be in the same space, what were audiences' reactions and responses on either side when you made that, I guess, kind of a, a meta-theatrical intervention? What kind of conversations ensued? Uh, it's different every time. I think it's different in every city. Um, like, we haven't done it in that many. Actually, we've only done it in three. We were scheduled to do a couple more. Um, three or four. Anyway, but um, it is different. And it really depends on on that performance in the night, like what the vibe is, because again, because it's back and forth, like I get I can pretty much get a sense of, of how the audience is like each night now, not when I started doing it, um, but now I can. Um, so it ranges. Uh, generally, it's pretty accepted, though, like even when we first did it, like the first time, I think it was just not clear what the hell we were asking people to do. Like, and I think that a lot of people just black out and they don't like, because the ask is so weird, they just don't do it. And they're like, I don't know what's happening. Is this real? Is this not? Which is a weird thing because it's just a play. Um, but um, when we do, like, 
the most pushback I guess we would have got, you could say, was in Ottawa. So we did it at the NAC, and that was like a 400-seater space, way bigger. Usually doing like a 60-70 seater. Um, and in that case, like, yeah, there'd be pushback. But generally, again, people were kind of fine with it. Like, it's not that big a deal. I think it's a harder thing. Like, people will say, like, here's why, like, if someone <laughs> makes a conscious decision, like, they will tell me uh, if they're making a point. Like, had many conversations with, like, um, people outside being like, you know, I left and I didn't have to leave. And these are, like, people of color, usually, being like, I just want to let you know. I don't experience that necessarily. I respect what you're doing, but I was going to leave. Get a lot of that uh, every now and again. And then I also get like from people, uh, the weirdest thing, well, it's not that weird. I get it. People who stay, who then feel like they shouldn't stay and are then stuck because they've stayed. Um, it's a hard go for them because I think it's like, I'm going to prove this. I'm going to outwit this performance. And then it's like, it's not, it's a pretty genuine like part of the show, the next part. So it's like, I can see them feel horrible um, or be proud of it. Like a little microcosm of, I guess, just living in Canada. People are going to be like, screw you. I get to stay because I paid for my ticket versus other people will be like, I get what this is about. I'll do it. And other people will just be like, okay, I don't know. I'm just at a show, man. Whatever. <laughs> Which is at the end of the day, it is what it is. It's just a show. Yeah, exactly. Um, as, as the co-founder of Pandemic Theater, what's something new or surprising that the actual pandemic has, has taught you about yourself or about theater or about our society or, or all three now that we're kind of, what, our first anniversary of, of kind of going through it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's anything specific. Well, actually, you know, I shouldn't say that because um, we're, we're writing a CTR article about this, which uh, is really not written to the, for the style form. I'll just uh, didn't follow the style guide. Now I got to fix that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I guess like, you know, we've been talking about it a lot back and forth. Uh, pandemic It's basically just myself and my buddy, Tom. Um, so, um, you know, I think we've been thinking a lot about satire and like what the role of satire and humor is like and how that's changing, uh, especially like after like now that Trump is gone. Sorry to invoke the name of uh, the Dark Lord, but now that um, that dude's out of office and the dude who's in office is like for all his problems, seems like a nice guy. <laughs> it's like America was like, we're into nice guys, not assholes. Like, great. That's a small <laughs> political step of setting your 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 level higher but that's cool um like i just think there's there's satire is due for a bit of a comeback because now it's not too weird it's not too insane to to try to laugh about because like disinformation is such a thing i i remember like 2000 i want to say like seven 2007, I was chatting with um, a former partner of mine's parent, uh, who is a sociology professor. And we were having an argument about The Daily Show. And they were saying like, oh, well, it, it could come across as like, people might think it's real. And I was like, no way, that's absurd. Like that level of fake information, like no way people would think that. Which is, you know, I, I was like in my 20s. So of course, to my, uh, you know, just not listening to the sociology professor saying this who probably has 
some thinking, but it feels true now. Like it just got so crazy there that like, I don't know, like satire just wasn't working anymore. Like it just, what was the point? Um, and uh, yeah, now I'm, I'm hoping it'll come back. So, and I think there's an appetite for it. Like people are craving liveness um, and they are craving a laugh really need to laugh and that was kind of what we started the company for in a lot of ways it was it was mainly like political satire stuff like occasionally it'd be some heavy stuff but just jokes like just jokes because i think jokes lead to um a more critical engagement you know if anything else so yeah i'm hoping i i feel like we're in absence of it a lot and i think this this little arts theater community can be a bit of a microcosm of it but there's an absence of humor um, and the pandemic has been a good reminder of its importance. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with it right now. I'm also like, you know, we're coming up on a year. So I'm a mix of like, I'm kind of over it now, which I've not been over it the whole time. I've been totally fine with it uh, besides people dying. But, um, you know, otherwise for my lifestyle, if I don't have to actually see or talk to anybody else besides my immediate, like people I have to talk to. That's great. Um, that's awesome for me and how I like to live my life. But now I'm getting kind of, <laughs> I'm kind of like, I don't know, man, I don't know. <laughs> great. Well, one last question before you turn yeah. it over to our students. I'm looking far, far into the future. How, yeah. what would you like to be remembered for as an artist? Yeah, I think it depends on the future. Um, so like, cause I, I think in some ways it's like, I just want to be like, if it's the current historical record or whatever, like, I don't know, a kind of crazy, but ultimately chill dude from the colonies is kind of how I think about it. But in that kind of ideal world, like it's like, and depends on how far we're going. I kind of hope that like the record, the importance of like this colonial period, because I think Canada is still in colonial period and like a lot of the world is like, it just isn't really the focus anymore. <laughs> you know, um, I don't, I don't see that happening imminently or anything, but uh, it is though, like it's, it is so much what I am. It's like, I, I really, I'm a byproduct of colonization. Like my entire people are a byproduct, like the Indo-Caribbean people wouldn't have existed were it not for colonization. So I'm going to always be from the colonies. I just kind of hope that like, we're looking at like, it's, it's not worth, I hope it's not, there's nothing about me that's memorable and that nothing about my work that's memorable um, besides to my immediate family. Like I, I wrote mo a lot of this stuff for my nieces just so that they have, so when they're like 20, 30 or whatever, they can just read the play and be like, Oh, that's what, that's where that's from. Um, but otherwise, like, yeah, again, Hindu stuff. It's better for me if I just fade out into nothingness. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time, your experiences, and your insights, Jeff. Yeah, for sure.